the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. The number is 303-873-1935. If you'd like to join me on the program, 303-873-1935. That's the number. And again, um... It's easy to do. You pick up the phone, you dial that number. Producer Jim is standing by to take your call about God, the historical Jesus, questions about the Bible. Again, if you'd like to join me on the program. And um, I'm going to read from the American Minute. These are notable events of American significance remembered on the date that they occurred by my friend Bill Federer. And he writes for March 24th. And I quote, William J., son of the first Supreme Court Chief Justice, helped found New York City's Anti-Slavery Society in 1833. His son, John J., was manager of the New York Young Men's Anti-Slavery Society in 1834. Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story helped establish the illegality of the slave trade in the 1844 Amistad case. Salmon B. Chase, appointed chief justice by Abraham Lincoln, defended so many escaped slaves in his career, he was nicknamed Attorney General of Fugitive Slaves. Cassius Marcellus Clay, diplomat to Russia for Lincoln, and Grant, founded the anti-slavery journal True American in 1845 and helped found the Republican Party in 1854. Rufus King was born March 24th, 1755. Guess who else was born on March 24th? Jim Nichols. A, A guy named Peyton Manning. He was born March 24th, 1976. Steve McQueen was born on March 24th. And guess what? I was born on March 24th. (laughs) So today's my birthday. So March 24th, Rufus King. He was one of the youngest signers of the United States Constitution He was only 32 years old when he signed the United States Constitution. Rufus King was a a graduate of Harvard. He was the aide to General Sullivan during the Revolutionary War. And Rufus King later served as the United States Minister to England and was a United States Senator from New York. In a speech made before the Senate at the time, Missouri was petitioning for statehood. Rufus King stated, quote, I hold that all laws or compacts imposing any such condition 
as slavery upon any human being are absolutely void because they're contrary to the law of nature, which is the law of God, unquote. You know, for the person who basically suggests that uh, America has lived an unrequited history of injustice and inequity, simply don't believe in history. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you'd like to join me on the program. 303-873-1935. Hey, um, as I... um, I'm looking, we we seem to have a little bit of some technical difficulties, not with our station, but with my um, internet connection. So 303-873-1935, you can call me if you would like to on the program. And, Mike, um, yep, it's all failing, it's all failing. But while it's failing, just a couple of things. First Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. I'm so grateful to God to be able to be in the ministry. As I'm coming up um, at this season in my life, I'm reminded of that passage of Scripture. And... Um, in First Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, where it says, I thank G- the Lord Jesus, who's enabled me because he counted me faithful by putting me in the ministry. He said, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly. In First Timothy chapter 1, this letter opens with Paul calling on Timothy to defend the faith and confront the false teachers in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Now Paul is going to define the true minister in verses 12 through 17. And Paul is going to appeal to his own commission and conversion as an example of God's grace, of God's mercy, of God's love. So Paul wants Timothy to know that in spite of the critics who may question Timothy's maturity or ability, that God can use him in the ministry. And Paul will draw on his own testimony to provide a sharp contrast between himself and the false teachers. You see, there was a time when Paul was Saul, a persecutor of the church. He described himself as a former blasphemer and an insolent man. He was bent on persecuting the saints. And not only was he bent on persecuting the saints, but there's this testimony that God changed him. Jesus changed him. How do you go from a murderer to a missionary? And in this little short section, Paul tells us what God did in verse 12 and 14 and 15. And when 
God did it in verse 13 and why God did it in verses 16 and 17. What did God do? He selected Paul and then saved Paul. And when God, and and God did it in the sense of when Saul, when Paul was Saul, violent, insolent, by the way, that word insolent carries with it the idea of injurious person who causes injury, a blasphemer, a persecutor of Christians. So why in the world would God save Paul? And I'm sure that we could come up with a long laundry list. There's lots of reasons. Um, But Paul offers this explanation to provide a pattern, to set an example that God was willing to demonstrate his amazing love and exercise his amazing grace on the worst sinner. And so Paul has already condemned the false teachers who teach false doctrine in verse 3 and fabricate fables in verse 4 and generate disputes in verse 4 and pervert the law of Moses in verse 7. So Paul is insisting that Timothy promote sound doctrine, and then he's going to offer his own testimony as an illustration of the lawful use of the law. What is God willing to do for lost sinners? Well, God's willing to save the lost sinner. That, my friends, is interesting. This is Gino Geraci. Thanks for joining me. 303-873-1935. I'll be back. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me. It's 303-873-1935. Producer Jim, thanks for sending me the note. Apparently a fire broke out today at Empower Field, you know, at Mile High. And uh, according to a number of different outlets, the uh, they apparently everything is under control. Um there was a fire that burned at the club level on the east side of Empower Field, which is, of course, the home to the NFL Broncos. And the the Denver Fire Department responded about uh, 2.15 this afternoon. And then apparently this fire uh, broke out in a construction zone. And the fire was put out at 2.45, which means, obviously, that it burned for about 15 minutes, or I should say 30 minutes, about 75 firefighters were in the stadium when a second alarm called um, before the fire was completely extinguished. Investigators have have said, have not said, I should say, they have not said what caused the fire. Now, again, they might come up with a uh, cause, and hopefully if I get that information, I'll let you know. And, of course, there were no injuries. The The stadium was evacuated, and it looks like they've got it under control. By the way, the stadium seats some 76,125 people, which includes 8,200 club seats and 144 suites. It opened August 11, 2001. It, of course, replaced the original Mile High Stadium, which was about 50 feet from the current stadium, which is now the parking lot. So 303-873-1935, that's the number if you want to um, join me on the program. Now, of course, this is not a, a sports program. This is the program where we take your calls. 
answer your questions about God, the Bible, the historical Jesus. But Jim Nichols, did you see that Kansas City Chiefs uh, signed wide receiver Marquez Valdez-Scantling to a three-year deal? So even though they lost Tyreek Hill, they have uh, signed a contract with uh, another player. Yeah. So the terms weren't disclosed, but apparently Marquez Valdez Scantling signed a contract, three-year, $30 million deal worth up to $36 million. Can you imagine for playing a kid's game? It's pretty impressive. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program, 303-873-1935. I've got open lines, so if you've ever wanted to call, now would be a great time. But I was talking about um, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, where it says, And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. You know, in that first chapter of 1 Timothy chapter 1, he condemns the false teachers who teach false doctrine in verse 3, who fabricate tales in verse 4, who generate disputes in verse 4, who pervert the law of Moses in verse 7. And then he insists that Timothy promote sound doctrine. And like I said, he offers his own testimony as an illustration of the lawful use of the law. And in verse 15, we see Paul referring to the faithful sayings that are worthy to be believed and embraced by people in every generation. He uh, talks about these faithful sayings in chapter 3, verse 1, in chapter 4, verse 9. He talks about them in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, in Titus chapter 3, verse 8. And then Paul points to himself like a vibrant stained glass window where all the colors and shades and hues of mercy and grace and love come alive. You see, what Paul is doing is he's writing, and sometimes I think we forget just how amazing this is, that sinners can be saved, that even false teachers or misguided teachers can be put back on track to the glorious gospel. And so Paul wants to offer Timothy guidance and encouragement and, dare I say, inspiration. And I don't know if it's been a while since you've opened your Bible and looked at it, but I'm hoping that you do so on a, on a regular basis. So when Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who's enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry, he's offering himself as one who's been enabled by grace to serve effectively as Christ's servant. By the way, he says, putting me into the ministry, that word ministry in verse 12 translates a Greek word, diakonia. We get the word diakonos or diakona, which means a servant. And so it's a word here translated ministry, but it means a person who serves. 
So Paul's calling and credentials in verse 1 and service were given to him by the Lord Jesus in verse 12. And Paul wasn't some sort of self-appointed leader, even though the critics were quick to make that claim. Paul was placed in service and ministry by the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul did not participate in ministry as a logical career path or by taking a personality test or because he tested high uh, for ministry or pastoral ministry. The word translated enabled is a very long Greek word, but it means to strengthen by imparting power. So when it says, I think, Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me, strengthened by imparting the power. In this case, it's the power of God that's given by Christ Jesus. What's important about that statement is that this isn't self-generated power. This isn't power that comes from willpower or resolve or human resources. Paul uses that same term in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, where he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Same word. Same word. Enabled me. Strengthened me. Same word. Jesus placed Paul in the ministry and then strengthened or enabled Paul for the ministry. So the self-appointed minister is doomed to failure. The minister that Jesus selects and empowers can expect sufficient enabling, strength, and power. Is it possible, is it possible that a self-appointed pastor... A self-appointed minister might be able to accomplish some good things. I'm going to say maybe, perhaps, but the true minister has to have a keen sense of calling and enabling by the Lord Jesus himself. The Lord Jesus placed Paul in service. And so the expression, because he counted me faithful, or judged me faithful, translates a Greek word, hegesato, which means carefully considered, a word that's used less in the judicial or sense of judgment, but rather relationship. Paul doesn't think he has earned God's favor by being a sincere sinner and a misguided sinner, but but that even this call and commission was given by God's grace. So Paul doesn't rationalize or glorify his rebellion and disobedience to God. He's placed in ministry by Jesus, and Paul's purpose is established sovereignly by God. He counted me faithful. This is Gino Geraci, 303-873-1935. I'll be back. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. The number is 303-873-1935. Let's see who's up. Luke, welcome to the program. Hi. Hi, Hi Luke. <clears throat> what was that quote about slavery about 20 minutes ago? 
Um, I was stuff that happened on this day. You had these quotes. Oh yeah, yeah. I was talking about um, John Jay, but I was actually talking about uh, Rufus King, who basically said, "Quote: I hold that all laws or compacts imposing any such condition." as slavery upon any human being are absolutely void because they're contrary to the law of nature, which is the law of God. Okay. Um, it was just really odd because uh, I was going over Martin Luther, you know, the movie. Sure. The movie. And then uh, I, I've been listening to uh, atheist uh, Matt Dillahunty of the Atheist Experience. And uh-huh. uh, this is something he likes to bring up. That topic of slavery, twenty-one, right, right. And then while I'm watching them, I'm sitting here thinking about this, and all of a sudden you start quoting this, which is really strange. Wow. Uh, so, um, but I was thinking, well, we've abolished slavery, right? And who did that? Bible-believing people did that. Exactly. Well, why would Why would they do that? Yeah. Like why that would the they movie do Amazing that? Grace? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, a outstanding movie. Yeah, usually so, uh, the critic to the Bible will say, well, wait a minute. Didn't they condone slavery? And and the right way... I they- think uh, this guy's problem, this atheist guy, his problem was the whole brutality of it. About being able to beat people and treat them bad, you know. Sure. And and so the way that I would answer that question is it's it's... That slavery, as it as it existed in the 16th and 17th century, and 18th and and 19th century, for that matter, wasn't like the Bible. In the Bible, slavery wasn't based on skin color, and in the Old and the New Testament, it condemns the practice of man stealing. But the Bible doesn't forbid human beings from making good on contracts by selling themselves in order to satisfy a debt. And so I'm going to suggest that what you're suggesting, and that is, no, slavery is not a good thing. Slavery is a bad thing. And the Mosaic law condemns anyone who kidnaps another and then sells him or still has him when he's caught must be put to death. That's what it says in Exodus chapter 21, verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So in a way, we can understand the severity of the sin. But that's like stealing someone's property, more or less, because it says that that slave is property. Well, I guess I'm going to suggest to you that that in the Bible, it what, it what it's talking about isn't kidnapping a slave, but rather kidnapping a human being. Anyone who kidnaps another, it doesn't say specifically slaves. Now, you're right, in the, in the slave trade era, if a person stole a slave, they stole property, because in that sense, in their way of thinking, that that slave was property. So in the New Testament, slave traders are listed among those who are ungodly and sinful, and they fall into the same category as people who kill their mom, people who kill their dad, murderers, adulterers, and perverts and perjurers. Okay. Um, 
Well, I guess what I, I'm trying to find out. Well, that's you're saying it can. It, it, your atheist, the atheist people are saying they condone it, or that Christians condone it. And what I'm saying is, well, there's got to be a cause why later on the same people who are saying that they really believe this is true, and if it says that and they believe it's condoned, why would you want to get rid of your slaves? Why would you want to abolish it? You know, there's got to be a cause. Well, and I, I think what I would argue is that there's something more wicked about slavery based on skin color versus what the Bible talks about when people find themselves, especially in the ancient world, a slave. Remember, people were sometimes born into slavery. Sometimes they were captured in war. Uh, Sometimes they were part of satisfying a debt. Probably one in every three people in the Roman Empire were slaves. Um, and, And so people might argue, well, why doesn't the Bible have more critic, you know, a deeper criticism of this problem? And I'm going to suggest that the Bible's primary message isn't about social justice. The primary message is about freedom from sin through Christ. That's the primary message. Well, does that mean it ignores every other message? No, I just talked about, you know, some of the other things that the Bible talks about in First Timothy, um, chapter one, verses eight through ten, um, where it talks about if one uses the law lawfully. Um, you know, it's not for the lawless and the disobedient, but for the ungodly and the sinner. So were there laws respecting the slave trade and the and amanuasis, the release of slavery in biblical times? Yes. Was that different from what you just talked about? And again, what you just said that Bible believers championed the abolition of slavery. It wasn't the atheists who championed the abolition of slavery or the philosophical naturalist or the Renaissance thinker who championed the abolish the abolition of slavery. There were Christians. And obviously something caused them to, re- to react that way. And now some of them were, yeah, risking their own lives and their, their political careers. Right. To do it. And I think part of that reason, which I was just quoting is the deep sense, not of social justice, but of, of because it literally went against the character of God and the revelation of God. That this kind of wickedness, and again, remember, in, in Roman Empire, people weren't enslaved because of their nationality or skin color. In Bible times, it was more about economics. It was a matter of social status. But the perverse practice of capturing African people by Arabs, by the way, and then the Arabs selling them to sailors and the sailors selling them in the New World became a kind of wickedness. And, And slave owners truly believed that black people were inferior human beings, which, again, Bible condemns that. The Bible has no support of of the wicked idea that there's such a thing as superior humans and inferior humans based on the presence or the absence of melanin in their skin. 
Um, before I, uh, you let me go, um, do you know about Emmaus Bible College, how they have all their seminary classes recorded online, and you could go online and actually sit there and listen like you're in the class? I'm not, you know, familiar with Emmaus, but um, but I'm familiar with online learning, obviously, but I don't know well, about... I just like it because it feels like I've got a seminary professor teaching me, and wow. free, by the way. How fun! So it's called... It's called Talks for Growing Christians. Is there a website that you could recommend? Yeah, it's that. It's talksforgrowingchristians.org. Okay, talksforgrowingchristians.org. There's a Bible that we can misinterpret it and get the wrong idea, and it's difficult to understand, and we should definitely, if we got the Internet, go on there and look it up. Well, and again, that's what I've devoted my life to. Making sure we get it right. But, hey, thank you so much for your call. You're welcome. 303-873-1935. Tony, you hold on. We're going to try to get to your call when we come back. And, again, the number 303-873-1935. Stay with me. This is Gino Geraci. We've got one more segment. I'll be right back. Hey, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me. The number is 303-873-1935. My, uh, when Luke called it, it made me think about, again, the subject of slavery and and some of the criticisms um, that Christians have or that you know they have about the Bible. And sometimes we forget that because we think, like the caller talked about, well, didn't we abolish slavery? And of course, the abolition of slavery has taken place all around the world, but guess what? Slavery still exists in the world. There is an estimate that some some people believe that there's close to 30 plus million people who are subject to slavery right at this very moment. Um, the United Nations obviously has condemned slavery. Slavery is outlawed in most countries, but again, there's they're subject to slavery, forced labor, sex trade, inheritable property. Um, those who've been redeemed from the slavery of sl- sin, followers of Jesus, uh, again, we want to be people who say, no, human slavery should be a thing of the past. It should be something that has ended long ago. But again, think about what's going on in our great big world. Slavery, war, one country invades another country and kills people. The question arises, why does the Bible not speak out more strongly? Why does the Bible, in fact, seem to support the practice of slavery? And again, the Bible doesn't specifically condemn the practice of slavery. It gives instructions on how slaves should be treated in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 12 through 15. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. And in the, in the seventh year, you shall let him go free. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. 
you shall furnish him liberally out of your own possessions. In Ephesians 6, 9, it says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. In Colossians 4, 1, Paul says, Masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. But it doesn't outlaw slavery altogether. And again, many see this as sort of Bible condoning forms of slavery. But again, we don't necessarily remember that slavery in biblical times was very different from the slavery that was practiced over the past few centuries in most of the world, in many parts of the world anyway. So the slavery in the Bible wasn't based exclusively on race. People were not enslaved because of their nationality or the color of their skin. In Bible times, slavery was more based on economics. It was a matter of social status. People sold themselves as slaves to satisfy debt. Some people sold themselves as slaves to provide for their families. And some people might even draw up a, a, a modern, um, a modern correspondent idea that you know some people work like slaves in order to pay the rent and put food on the table. In New Testament times, sometimes doctors, lawyers, even politicians were slaves of someone else. We have good reason to believe that Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Luke and Acts, quite possibly had been a slave, perhaps a freed slave. Onesimus, who's talked about in the book of Philemon, was a runaway slave, winds up in Rome, gets saved, and then is returned to his master Philemon in the Lycus Valley and will eventually become the pastor of the church. Some people actually chose to be slaves so that their needs would be provided for by their masters. In other words, a slave didn't have to provide anything for himself. It was the master's responsibility to provide food, clothing, shelter. And again, the slavery of the past few centuries was based almost exclusively on skin color. In the United States, many black people were considered slaves because of their nationality. Many slave owners truly believed black people to be inferior human beings. So the Bible condemns race-based slavery in that it teaches that all human beings are created by God. They're made in the likeness and the image of God. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. At the same time, the Old Testament did allow for economic-based slavery and regulated it. The key issue is that slavery, that the slavery the Bible allowed for didn't resemble the racial slavery that plagued the world of the past few centuries. And like I said, both the Old and the New Testament condemn the practice of man-stealing, which is what happened in Africa in the 16th to the 19th centuries. Africans were rounded up by slave hunters. Many of these slave hunters were 
Arabs. I'm not saying all of them were Arabs, but there was a very large portion of Arab slave hunters, Muslim slave hunters, who sold them to slave traders, who brought them to the New World to work the plantations and the farms. This practice is abhorrent to God, just like the modern practices of slavery. And again, like I quoted earlier in Exodus chapter 21, verse 16, anyone who kidnaps another and either sells him or still has him when he is caught must be put to death. So we're talking about kidnapping human beings for the purposes of selling them. In the New Testament, slave traders are listed among those who are ungodly and sinful. They're placed, like I said, in the same category as people who kill their mothers and fathers. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, it says, Now we know that the law is good, for if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. For those who strike their fathers and mothers. The idea of striking them is striking them in such a way as they wind up killing them. Another important point is that the purpose of the Bible, like I said, is to bring men and women to a place where they understand that they're sinners in need of salvation. The purpose of the gospel and the purpose of the gospel message isn't to create a just society of equality or social justice or to reform society. The Bible often approaches issues in a different way. And that different way is to change a person. If a person experiences the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, by understanding that they're sinners, receiving salvation, then, then God begins to change them from the inside out, changing the way they think and changing the way they act. And so when a person experiences the gift of salvation and freedom from the slavery of sin, God begins that process of the reformation of the soul. And you begin to realize enslaving people is wrong. And Paul understands that the slave is a brother in the Lord. Philemon 1.16. He's no longer a bondservant. He's a beloved brother, especially to me. And so, thanks for joining me. I'll be back tomorrow taking your calls, answering your questions. Thanks, Jim. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.